Hello, I'm Abram Vanningen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we will read and discuss One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. Joanne, would you like to read this poem? With pleasure, yes. One Art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and, vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. Oh, she kills me. She's so good. I know. <laughs> the end. <laughs> yeah. All right, so here's the thing. There, a lot of people listening to this podcast probably know who Elizabeth Bishop was, but if 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 you're among those who are just experiencing Elizabeth Bishop for the first time, uh, my advice to you is simple: go read Elizabeth Bishop, uh, get all of her poems. There's not even that many, and spend the weekend this weekend reading Elizabeth Bishop. She is by far one of the greatest poets of all time. You know what's interesting? You just commented on how she didn't have that many poems. Like her collected poems includes maybe a hundred poems, right? Mm-hmm. She had this incredible pressure that she put on herself in her life where she wrote, she was constantly trying to write and she struggled with it constantly. She was so frustrated all the time because she was challenging herself to truly create something new every time she wrote a poem. Mm -hmm. And boy, we are the beneficiaries of that labor because it worked. You know, every poem just really just pops off the page. She's magnificent. Yeah, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. And she she certainly had quality. And that quality was recognized. So just to give a little background here. So she was born in 1911 in Worcester, Massachusetts. She died in 1979. And she's widely recognized as one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. She won, you know, again, uh, every possible award you can win, the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, Guggenheim Fellowships, and so forth. She was the poetry consultant to the Library of Congress. She was the first woman professor ever to be included in the catalog at Harvard University. Woohoo! Yes. Uh, and, and, and so just say a word about why her poetry is so unique, so special, and so widely recognized. She was known as a poet of precision and discipline. Uh, Certainly she wrote in free verse, but she was also a master of forms. She was a very, very private person during her lifetime, very shy, very reserved. But over the past couple of decades, we've come to know a lot about her, especially through her correspondence with a variety of people, including Robert Lowell, who was one of her closest friends and the majority 
majority of their friendship was created through their letter writing to each other. Uh, we know a lot about her through her correspondence with Marianne Moore, who was a full generation older than Elizabeth Bishop, but was a wonderful friend to her and mentor. And uh, also, we've learned a lot in recent years from her letters to Lota de Macedo Suarez, who was her partner of many years. During her lifetime, she did not identify as a lesbian. However, she was romantically involved with several women throughout her lifetime and had a very long-term relationship with Lota de Macedo Suarez. And she lived with Suarez in Brazil for years. She lived as an expatriate. Elizabeth Bishop is known as a poet of great constraint and great reserve on the page. Um, but she had an incredibly turbulent, difficult life. Um, you know, when she was born, uh, w within a year, her father had died. Shortly after that, her mother was committed to an asylum and had a variety of mental health issues. And Elizabeth Bishop, throughout her young life, had to shuttle from one relative's house to another, and it was a very unstable unreliable kind of existence that she lived and she in her correspondence she really gives the impression that she just felt like an, an orphan her whole life even into middle age and adulthood she she felt a profound loneliness that permeates a lot of her work there's another layer here to, just to go back to Suarez and Bishop's relationship with her for a moment if you think about mid-20th century America and what kind of cultural milieu Bishop was working in and living in, some of that poetic restraint that she exhibits you know, in her work, it might have been a kind of form of self-preservation. So during the time that she was a consultant to the Library of Congress, we now call that the poet laureate position, well, it was a government position, right? And it still is. And, you know, at the time that she held that position, according to Megan Marshall's biography of Elizabeth Bishop, uh, there were 6,000 workers who were fired in a crusade for morality and decency, quote-unquote, that were uh, perceived to be um, gay or lesbian. And then also following up on that, in, in the 1950s, the American Psych Psychiatric Association's first DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that categorized homosexuality as, quote, a sociopathic personality disturbance. So that gives you a sense of how careful Elizabeth Bishop and her contemporaries had to be in that particular moment and why an expatriate life in Brazil might have been appealing to her. That's very helpful background. Uh, and it also helps us see a little bit behind the surface of things, because on the surface, it seems like she lived this kind of life of privilege. She had a trust fund. She was educated at Vassar. She lived mm -hmm. abroad in Brazil with her yeah. partner. She had all mm -hmm. the accolades of the poetry world. And, and so it seems like it was a complete life of privilege. And so a lot of the struggles that she hid throughout her life have only come out more recently in the kinds of letters that we've seen her writing with all of her correspondence. So maybe with all of that background in mind, we could turn to this poem and think about what is the structure of restraint that guides it. This is a very formal poem, and the form is a villanelle. Can you tell us what a villanelle is and, and how it works? 
Yes, I love even the word villanelle. It, it comes from the Italian word villanella, which means country or rustic. That's actually where we get our English word villain. Mm. Uh, hundreds of years ago, villain actually meant, oh, you country person. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I know, I know. Uh, and so it's a very old form, hundreds of years old. It has its origins in France and Italy. And like the sonnet, the villanelle is written in iambic pentameter. So da dun right that really yeah. steady beat unlike the sonnet the villanelle has a song-like refrain that keeps appearing sometimes with variation and in in a sort of alternating way from one stanza to the next now the way to create a successful villanelle is to really latch on to some kind of two-line sentence of aphoristic wisdom that can provide an anchor for the refrain in the villanelle, mm. right? And it's very, very difficult to do. And most of us fail. <laughs> I have tried many, many times and have failed many, many times. So I'm here to say it is incredibly difficult, but that's all the more reason to celebrate those poets who are able to do it really well. That's great. Yeah. And so maybe just to give a few examples and perhaps the one most people will be most familiar with is Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And uh, for those who know that poem, they remember the way that it comes back and comes back and comes back throughout that poem. There are five stanzas in a villanelle. The first four are three lines long, and the last one is four lines long. Uh, the, the first stanza begins by setting up the refrain in the first line and the third line. So we call that A1 and A2. And between A1 and A2 is B. And B sets up a rhyme scheme that's going to be followed all the way through. So this sounds very complicated, and it is. <laughs> this, is why it's, this, is why, this is why it's very difficult to write one well that doesn't sound incredibly stilted and forced and um, and just like a failure. And so when we get a, <laughs> to be to be blunt... Well, it almost sounds like a math problem more than a poem, yeah, doesn't right. it? Yeah. Uh, but but that's even that's important because this is where formal verse has value. So I think sometimes when people who are new to poetic forms look at the form, they feel like, oh, this is so rigid, it's so controlled. But sometimes, especially with intense emotional or intellectual material or chaotic material, Finding that form to anchor the chaos is absolutely essential to its articulation. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it seems to directly impinge upon how we read this poem. Yes. Which is so much about containing the chaos, um, processing the chaos, making the chaos uh, something that can be processed. Yeah. Would you like to start by just maybe even just looking at that first tercet of the poem, the first three lines? Absolutely. So if you think about this this poem and the first line of this poem, the art of losing isn't hard to master. We're supposed to be an iambic pentameter, which means we're supposed to have ten syllables in the line. Da 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 da. And we are almost there. It's almost perfect, absolutely perfect iambic pentameter. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Stir. <laughs> something <laughs> something went wrong. And so what's really super interesting about that first line is that it's not quite mastered. Well, and it's not because Elizabeth Bishop can't do it. We right. know she can do it. She's so good at that precision. However, if this is a poem that is presenting advice on how to, you know, how to lose things, 
and it is not able to doesn't have a mastery of the iambic pentameter line, already you wonder if you should believe it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and as you were pointing out uh, before before we started recording, what exactly is the art of losing? <laughs> mm. I mean, is losing a kind of art? It seems like losing is what happens when you're artless, or or yes. or that you you that you haven't mastered something is is how you lose things. How is losing a possible art in and of itself? Well, it's it's completely counterintuitive. Everything that I associate with loss is usually negative and something to be avoided. And and yet here she's suggesting that it can be a kind of art. So we get the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. How do you understand this first stanza as setting up the poem that follows? This is what I mean about setting up theoretical or aphoristic sentences that convey some kind of theory or wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this feels like a couple of generalized statements. The first is, what I'm about to teach you is actually not that difficult to do. Already, there is something that animates things that makes them losable. So why don't we embrace it and mm -hmm. not call it a disaster? It, it's a very provocative, strange way to begin this poem. And it sets up axioms that I then want to see return perhaps differently throughout the poem. That's great. Yeah. And then we move into that second stanza. And as we've talked about many times on this podcast, stanza, it comes from the Italian meaning room, and each stanza kind of forms a certain room in this poem. So the mm. second room in this poem, we now move to commands. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So we've got these commands that are telling us what to practice, how to train, how to begin to get this art ourselves look to at what um, Bishop is doing with enjambment and sejura. So enjambment occurs when there isn't punctuation at the end of a poetic line. Sejura occurs when there is a deep pause or punctuation in the middle of a poetic line. The reason that's important to mention now is because look what she does. Lose something every day. Pause. Accept the fluster of lost door keys. Pause the hour badly spent, period. What she's doing there is she's messing with the iambic pentameter to make sure that she creates variation so that you don't get bored with it, so it doesn't feel monotonous, right? Absolutely. And the other thing that she does here, it, it, to, again, following from the first stanza, is she's masterfully unmasterful. Yeah. Uh, and so in the first stanza, we talked about how that first line goes on one syllable too long. Well, here you have what's, based, what's sometimes called a slant rhyme or an off rhyme. Fluster is supposed to rhyme with master, yeah. but it doesn't quite rhyme. And that slant rhyme shows us that she is herself, despite her sort of authoritative voice, a bit flustered as we're getting going. And if you look down the poem, there are other places where this recur recurs. And so uh, in the fourth stanza, my last or is supposed to ma uh, rhyme with master. <laughs> yes. And then two stanzas later, gesture is supposed to rhyme. And so these slant rhymes, these off rhymes show that this is a poetic speecher who, who's trying to say up front, look, look, this is so easy. I'm a master of this. Just 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 follow my lead. And at the same time, the, the poem is masterfully showing how this is a thing that is overwhelming the speaker that cannot be mastered. So she starts with 
things, right, except the fluster of lost door keys, right? That seems like something that all of us have done about a million times. And then as we proceed through the poem, the stakes get a little bit higher, don't they? What happens next? Right, so she tries to push you further in that third stanza. Practice losing farther, losing faster, places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. (laughs) Now we've gone from door keys to some pretty more more personal uh, memories, right? And we think of people mm-hmm. who have lost the memory of having traveled to certain places, or even more sadly, the, the folks who begin to forget names, and especially names of loved ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now we're starting to think, wait, is this, is this an art of losing here that we want to master? Well, but also she's starting to align loss with regret, Mm-hmm. which is very powerful, where it was you meant to travel. How many of us have lists of things we meant to do or places we meant to go or attachments that we meant to have that we didn't have? And what starts to happen when those losses start to accumulate? How does that chip away at us in some way? She suggests with the refrain mm-hmm. that none of these will bring disaster. They may not bring disaster, but they'll certainly bring regret, right? Mm-hmm. And then she, she turns in the next stanza and says, I lost my mother's watch. And suddenly an eye has emerged, I, and something mm-hmm. very personal has been lost. Uh, look at what she includes there. She goes from that domesticity and commonness of my mother's watch to three loved houses. Mm-hmm. Look what she does. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. What? That's an enormous loss. It's a giant financial loss. Uh, it's a loss at least of a place that I'm sure had some incredible importance or significance to the speaker, right? I also love what you're saying about this being the first appearance of the word I. Mm -hmm. In the context of the 1950s and 60s when confessional poetry was uh, the norm, the fashion in, in American poems and poetry, you have a poet who is so reluctant to say very much about the I at all. So when you see it, you're like, wait a minute, does that give me some insight into, you know, something about her sensibility, right? And then you see this refrain uh, return, and this is where the villanelle's strength really comes in. The more this refrain appears, and, and especially the way that Bishop uses it in this poem, you get the sense that, wait, now she's trying to convince herself. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and then uh, the stakes get even higher in the penultimate stanza. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. I mean, how much is is a person capable of losing before we can call it a disaster? Right. And and before they before they get in a certain sense, broken by all these losses. And here is the first hint of a break. I miss them. So you're getting Mm. more and more of a sense of confession. You're getting more and more a sense of, okay, let me admit that that losing is not great. When the speaker says, I lost two cities, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent, it almost sounds like we're living in a fairy tale, right? I mean, no one owns cities. No one owns rivers and continents, right? right? But... Again, I want to resist the urge to read this as entirely autobiographical, and yet I can't help but think of um, Elizabeth Bishop as a wanderer, as someone who was always desperately searching for a feeling of home 
and yet never quite finding it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so in that context, I feel like this is a generalized statement that can be powerful for me as a reader, but also becomes even more poignant the more I understand about her life and her work. And now you turn to the last stanza. You've gone all the way up to losing continents, and then you get this dash, and it says, even losing you. So in other words, losing you is more than losing realms and rivers and continents. Uh, by the by, the logic of the poem, we have gone even further up, and yet we're going further into that personal, uh, to what is in a certain sense even very small. So the the the, the parenthetical that follows the joking voice, a gesture mm-hmm. I love, it, just losing that gesture is more than losing an entire continent. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. What do you see there? So much. Uh, thank goodness you read those lines. I don't know if I could have read them a second time. It, <laughs> it just breaks me up every time. Yeah. Uh, this is one of Elizabeth Bishop's last poems, actually. Um, she mm. wrote this toward the end of her life. And by this point, uh, Suarez, you know, her partner of many years, Lothar Suarez, had died. That took an enormous toll on Elizabeth Bishop. I also feel like these are the lines that show me how close the poetic speaker comes to disaster, but that the command to oneself to write and the fact that the poem has been, has been written is a testament to our ability to go on and to exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is partly what, again, the villanelle, the formal structure allows you to do. You've got this refrain. It's repeating, it's repeating, repeating. The art of losing isn't hard to master. The art of losing isn't hard to master. And then in the last bit, Thinking of this one person, she says, the art of losing's not too hard to master. Mm. And that too, we've talked before in in other poems, Robert Hayden's poem, for example, how that simple word too, T-O-O, can have just profound implications. And here it's inserted and it, it restructures the refrain. So she's no longer asserting what she asserted at the beginning. Now she's saying, well, it's not too hard to master. Even if you think about the rhyme, what is master supposed to rhyme with disaster? Well, what, is, what does it mean to master disaster? Yeah. <laughs> and is that something we want to do? Or is it the disaster that's mastering us? And, and, and part of the craft of this poem is showing the reciprocal relationship between those two words throughout, where you're losing control and regaining control and losing control and trying to regain control all the way through. And even just, just to add one more thing, that last line, I mean... What she does there in the parenthetical, again, to break up the refrain, write it. She's telling herself to write it. You get now the the revelation of how hard she is pushing herself to create this poem that will process her grief. Though it may look like, and this is in parentheses, write it like disaster. It feels like she's addressing us as readers at the beginning of the poem, but it's so clear by the end she's addressing herself. This is a struggle she's having within herself, mm-hmm. and we're watching it, and it's, it's very, very powerful for that reason. Hmm. Well, with all of that in mind, uh, would you like to read this poem again? Yes. One Art The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. 
lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last, or next to last, of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. That is so, so good. For more information about Elizabeth Bishop, her life, her magnificent work, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. Please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.